Hello, everyone, and welcome to DM Discussions, the podcast for players and DMs alike, where we cover a wide variety of topics to help you with your games. I'm your host, Ryan Reeder, and with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Ben Bumhoffer. How are you doing this evening, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing wonderfully. I've had lots of D&D lately. I had a game on Sunday afternoon. I had uh, a game last night with you, actually. Yes. I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, later, but it's it's been a good week so far. Yeah, I... Uh... I'm really busy. So the fact that I was able to play last night is really good. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were very glad to have you. Um, so today uh, we talked about characters and starting your campaign and stuff last week. This week we are going to talk all about combat from both a DM and a player perspective. So let's kick things off right away. Ben, combat oh my gosh so when it comes to dungeons and dragons this is what some people love and fear at the same time like the most there's a lot of number crunching especially when you're setting up as well as you know when you're actually in the middle of it but there's also a lot of different things that can go on Uh, a lot of different things that really determine you know the, the pace of the, of the combat as well as where it's going to end up and much more so how it's going to actually affect your story that you're telling. Yeah, so exactly. It, it, it's, it's an important set piece and uh, there's a lot to talk about here. There is. Uh, we're going to start by tackling this from a DM perspective. And I think probably one of the, the best intros to that from a DM perspective is what type of combat do you want to have in your game? And so from, from my experience, and there may be more, but I, a lot of it boils down to, to three different types of combat. And I'll, I'll kind of go over those real quick, and then we can kind of deep dive a little bit. Um, we'll talk a little bit about counter building, mixing, mixing encounters up, uh, dice rolling from the DM perspective. There's a lot of stuff you can do and there's a lot of controversial things mm-hmm. about this. Uh, seen some very strong opinions both ways. So start out types of combat. Um, like I said, there's, there's three main ones that, that I usually classify and then a lot of, you'll, you'll see a lot written about this as well. The first is also the cheapest and it's called Theater of the Mind. Very um, cheap. <laughs> very cheap. All you need is your brain. Whoa. I know. <laughs> uh, so pretty much with this, it's, it's exactly what it says. And the DM sets the stage. They give the description. They give uh, the placements of the characters. They, give the, they, they talk about the surrounding environment. And then you go use, do combat from that. And I really like this method a lot because uh, it can pull players in, especially as uh, if it, as a DM, you are very descriptive in what you're doing. Uh, It causes the players to answer questions, which can help keep them engaged a lot more too, which I really like about this style of combat. Um, It can get a little tricky if you are 
in combat against a large amount of enemies. Yeah. Uh, but for just a few enemies, especially, this is a very, very fun, very interactive form of combat. And this type of combat gives you an enormous amount of flexibility, more flexibility than any other type of combat, because as the DM, you can change things on the fly. If someone asks if something is there, like, is there a place I can hide behind? Here, there, and you can be, oh yeah, yeah. There's this rock just 15 feet away from you. You can pop over there and hide behind it. Whereas if you're playing on a grid or something, well, there's no rock there. So it it gives people the opportunity to to be more creative. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, I think the big thing that you keyed in most uh, for me, anyways, is that once the the combat actually becomes larger. You know, when you're you're fighting five or six enemies, or you have a you know a big number of of uh, people actually in your your player party, that's when doing the the second option, the grid, personally uh, works best for me. Um, I, I play with some people who you know have actually uh, some trouble with theater of the mind just because they're a very visual person, and like you said, having it actually like laid out on a grid is great, but sometimes it makes it a little bit harder to improv it, uh, depending on, you know, how detailed your setup is. Now there's a couple different ways that you can use this. It's, um, you know, just grab a piece of paper and just kind of give a general idea, um, or, you know, get a, an actual grid system. Uh, there's a, a plenty of them that are out there that are like dry race so that you can, you know, draw different trees or terrain or different things on it. Or you can do a deep dive and uh, go into like 3D printing um, actual, you know, three-dimensional elements to it, which uh, I've, I, I don't have a 3D printer, but I've started uh, collecting, you know, just bits and pieces and stuff to, you know, kind of create more flair with the, the dungeon, you know, giving it doors and rooms and everything so that as my players are playing, they actually have an idea of the space that's there. As a, because sometimes if it's just, you know, kind of drawn out, um, they don't get an idea of actual scale. But at the same time, just having a, a visual representation helps out a lot because they know, you know, very, very quickly if they're within range or something because they can count how many squares away they are, which um, one square is like five feet generally if you're using, uh, you know, just ran, uh, regular Dungeons and Dragons terms. So things for that work out really well. You're able to uh, look at like spell effects that are like a cone uh, or like a, you know, a, a 15 foot cube or something, you know, exactly where you can place it so that you can be effective and either hurt or not hurt your party members, you know, just different things like that. Yeah. And combat becomes more tactical in a lot of ways when you're using the grid. Cause like you said, you know exactly how much it is to something, what exactly that AOE affects. Um, and it does help people, some people out, some people need that structure Whereas theater of the mind can be very, uh, I don't know what the term would be, uh, abstract. Yes. can be very abstract. And so some people do have trouble thinking in those terms. Uh, the other thing about grid combat is while theater of the mind is free, grid combat can be pretty much free as well but it has it has probably the widest range you go from pretty much free to here's a piece of graph paper or here's a little dry erase board with a grid on it to i have dwarven forge pieces and i've collected a thousand minis and all my players have uh hero forge printed miniatures 
and everything is painted in beautiful detail. I use LEDs and, and, uh, dry ice and <laughs> and risers and all this sort of stuff. So you get really into it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen some of those gaming tables where people put like a giant flat screen on the table bottom and you, oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of fantastic. All the creativity or that that's put into just gameplay, but yeah. you know, like Ryan said, piece of paper and a pen. That's all you really need if you're, you're doing a, a grid-based, you know, like visual representation. Yeah. And then uh, the third view is kind of a, a mix of these two. And I, I generally refer to it as a hybrid mode, where basically you're using a lot of the uh, aspects of theater of the mind, but you've got like a scratch piece of paper or something like that, and you're drawing generalities for your players. So they do have some sort of visual representation, but not going all the way into, okay, this is five, five foot squares. As you go, it's more just like, okay, here's my piece of paper, this little circle, that's you, this little circle, that's, that's the boss. Um, there's some train over here on the sides cliff. Uh, there's a river over here down at the bottom. Uh, you friends are here and here. And so it gives people visual representation, but it continues to allow you not to be uh, as strict and a little more flexible than, than a grid system. Exactly. And something like that works incredibly well when all of a sudden there's an encounter that sprung up that you had no prep for whatsoever. Um, I don't know how many times I've had to just, okay, pull out something really quick, draw it really quick and just say, okay, here's uh, some trees some bushes over here's the river. Um, this is where these guys are and you're coming from this direction because based on something they did, which as we know from last episode, the players will completely destroy any plan you have as soon as you start the game. So it, it allows you to be as fast and swift and creative and really kind of give you the chance to really paint the picture in their mind and then just have, you know, kind of little placeholders there. Exactly. And speaking of that, that transitions really well into the next topic, which is encounter building in combat. Because this is this is a hard thing, guys. This is this is actually a really hard thing to do because encounter building is not an exact science. Not at all. There's a lot of really good guidelines in the DM's guide. Uh, but a lot of this is it's it's very abstract because no two campaigns are the same no two campaigns have the same magic items at the same levels mm-hmm. um certain monsters do certain things that your party makeup may be more resistant to or more affected by or um players may have different abilities that you just you know have no idea that they're just going to randomly remember and throw out there yeah or you have a freaking bard who has all sorts of weird support stuff and your head monsters running around running from this phantasmal force that (laughs) you're just like well i should have rolled higher but that's just it's bards um that's what they excel at they're good at they're good at that um so we wanted to kind of give you a few guidelines from from our experience of encounter building um, so fifth edition specifically uses the challenge rating system. So if you see something, uh, if you look at a monster and you see it's CR 
something, CR1, CR5, CR10. That's the challenge rating of the monster. And in generalities, a monster of X challenge rating, let's say a CR4 monster should in general be a challenge to a party of four players of fourth level. Oh, so that's no, that's exactly how it worked because I always go by the, the, well, the chart on page 82 of the dungeon master's guide is really handy. And, and that totally plays into it as well because next to the challenge rating, you're going to see an XP value. Yep, and you can build stuff through XP, uh, or you can build encounters through XP values. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Based on uh, what your character's levels are, it gives you uh, kind of a a general idea of what would be an easy encounter, a medium encounter, a hard encounter, and then a deadly encounter. And it's a good guideline, but it is in no way perfect. No way at all. Because. I found that uh, I need to start skewing a lot more on the the harder, more deadly encounter side because, uh, well, I've got two heavily armored players in my group. I've got other people who deal a lot of damage and I've had encounters that have gone by, you know, two or three rounds and that's about it without anybody taking any damage when it should have been a super hard encounter. Yeah. And there's, and like, like I said, there's ways to help you play in these type of things. Uh, like Ben said, that table is great. You can go to sites like Cobalt Fight Club mm-hmm. that can help you. Um, D&D Beyond just released their Encounter Builder Alpha. Now, granted, you have to, you have to be a subscriber of some sort to access it currently um, since it's still in the alpha phase, but it's another one of those things that will help you plan encounters out and it uses that that XP system guideline. But beyond that, you really have to tailor encounter building to your game. And it'll take a little while because you kind of have to know your players, know their characters, know the amount of damage they can put out, know how sturdy they are. Um, And then there's this thing called action economy. And this is probably the number one thing for just designing an encounter and where that CR system, especially post level five begins to really break down uh, is because is action economy is how many times in a single round of combat and in D and D terms, rounds of combat are, are six second chunks. And how many times can your players attack within that six second chunk time period? And how many times can the monsters attack? Because if my players can get off six to eight attacks for every one or two attacks that my enemy can get off, even if it's a very high single target, single monster challenge rating, there's a good chance that that encounter is going to be a lot easier for the players than the monster level shows, unless your monster is just one-shotting people because they will get to hit it six to eight times for every one or two times it tries to hit them. Exactly. And especially once you get into higher levels where some characters get like extra attacks per turn, Uh, you know, if they take the the actual attack action, um, they can actually go two, three, four times depending on what level they get to. And if you get someone who, you know, tends to roll high as well, you know, your, your monster is just toast at that point. But 
I, I would say the, the thing that matters most in, in some sort of combat round and everything is that you have it as tuned as you possibly can, but also be ready to be flexible if you need to be. So uh, I was actually, uh, I, I think we might've mentioned it on, on the last episode, but uh, Nevermore created a, an actual birthday uh, one shot for me. It was absolutely fantastic. We had a ton of fun playing and the, the, what ended up being the last boss was something that um, was a little bit overtuned for what we needed. And then we found that out on the very first attack. And then she very quickly and smartly adjusted it so that, you know, it, it still did a whole bunch of damage and everything, but it wasn't as much as it could be. There were resistances that were there that after finding out how much damage the thing was able to spend, were just kind of nullified at that point because it's like, okay, we, you know, we want to give them a good shot at this, but still be challenging. And I found that being able to, to fine tune on the fly is really rough and can be hard to do. But at the same time, your players are going to be thankful for it because believe it or not, as much as, as combat might feel like it, it's not supposed to be actually the DM versus the players. Yeah, totally, totally agree. It's, you are there to have fun. You are there to make sure your players are having fun and you are not against them. This monster mm. is against them. And I, I love that you, you kind of talked about that scenario because there are a lot of really good tips we can give you for des- um, designing and adjusting encounters on the fly. And the, the DM's guide even talks about this um, using average damage if you need to. Um, scaling the hit points within the... There's, there's a, a scale of hit points for monsters. There's an average hit points and then there's a, there's a top and a bottom end. So you can adjust that. that and that's even within the rules. Exactly. A- adjusting that as need be. Um, if you need to make an encounter harder, you can have a new wave of enemies come in. You can add an, an extra monster or two because as I was just talking about action economy, if you add one or two monsters, you actually raise the difficulty significantly mm-hmm. than if you just have one or two bigger guys there. Um, if you need to, if you're like, oh crap, this is, Ooh, this is way harder than I was expecting it to be, or I put way too many things in there. You can have uh, all sorts of stuff happen. Um, you can have, uh, if you're the, your players kill a boss, you can have their minions run away. Uh, you can adjust a very strong monster like Ben just uh, talked about uh, with flavor. And as they attack, it's like it appears you're uh, degrading their armor or... You just not that that attack knocked the shield out of out of their hand, and all of a sudden the boss has two AC less, and they're easier to hit. Um, or it looks like that attack severely wounded his right arm. Now they don't; they have one less in their multi attack. Mm-hmm. You can do things like that that are flavorful and keep people in the game on the fly, and it makes them feel really good about it. One thing that I actually, I I found this out uh, back when I was DMing fourth edition and it it really goes into feeling good about the combat. And this may seem weird at first, 
but the encounters need to actually be scary. They need to be challenging. They death needs to be a possibility. You know, as much as I didn't want any of my players to die because I'm like, Oh, they're going to have a bad day if they die, or this is going to be horrible or something. The whole point of D and D is it's a living world and it's a dangerous place. A character can die. You know, I've heard stories of people who've been playing for years and, you know, their, their first encounter, they died. Okay. So they re-rolled and, and made someone else. Okay. Then three sessions in that person died. So then they re-rolled, made someone else. I get being attached to a character and you can love them and want to do everything that you can to save them. And, you know, maybe you fall in love with some of your, your players characters, but deaths need to be on the table because if you go in and there's no challenge whatsoever, you're not going to have as much fun as if there was actually a possibility of, of danger. You know, it adds to the excitement. It adds to the fun. It adds to the success when you actually finally finish an encounter. You know, it's like um, you're, you're playing world of Warcraft. You're trying to fight something like really hard. You'd say you're raiding or something like that and you die. It sucks, but you know what? You come back, you keep going at it. If you were to go into an encounter that's supposed to be challenging but it's not, and you just kind of breeze and walk through the entire thing without any sort of, you know, effort whatsoever. You know, first time you're in there, is that as much fun as it could be? It's, it's, it's the sense of accomplishment. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the stories that you generate from those near misses or potentially even those heroic deaths, right? Um, and this is one of the things we, we kind of talked a little bit about last week too, but this is something you need to set the expectation with, with your players too, at the start of, of a campaign, you need to let them know, okay, this is going to be, this, this campaign is going to be a meat grinder, expect to die, have a a few extra characters on hand. Don't get too attached. Uh, Some people love that style. I am personally not one of them. No, I, I get attached to characters. Uh, but some people really like that style, that, that, that meat grinder type style. But uh, otherwise, I, uh, like when I told my players the, the first time we started, I was like, okay, death, death is a possibility in this world. Yes, there is resur- resurrection magic. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually use, uh, I'm using a variation of Matt Mercer's resurrection rules in mind because I think personally, uh, resurrection is too easy. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So I use a, a ritual style um, resurrection mechanic where there is a chance for resurrection to fail because once characters, especially if you have like a cleric or something like that, get post level five, death becomes much less scary because I have revivify, I have resurrection, that sort of thing. And so for me personally, that's one homebrew I really like um, is a little bit of modified resurrection rules because it still adds in that we don't, you should care about dying. Yeah. Yeah. You, you shouldn't like, Oh, it's okay. The, the cleric will get me or somebody will resurrect me cause, cause magic. And so I, I kind of like, I kind of like that idea, but it is something that you need to talk to your players about when you start your campaign and set expectations. Exactly. Um, I'm entirely with you on that. I'm, I'm totally stealing, you know, Matt's homebrew and, you know, treating it more as a ritual than everything. That's, 
If you haven't seen it, um, it happens in Critical Role, the first campaign, at least once. That's all I'm going to say in case you haven't seen it. Um, but it it works out really well because it adds gravitas to the whole situation of they might come back, they might not come back. And it, it makes it just so much more real. You know, it, it's like if you're walking around- the players it, involved. Oh yeah, exactly. It, it It's more than just, okay, I'm casting this because I have a diamond that's worth 500 gold. So you're just alive again. You know, even if you have that, doesn't mean it's going to work. And it, the thing that I like most is that with that whole system too, is you die once, great. The next time that you die, it's going to be more difficult to bring you back because you've already gone through that doorway once. Yeah, exactly. I, I really like that system a lot. And in our, in our show notes, we can put a link to that. Uh, I believe they're over on the DMs Guild, or he's, he's got a link out there to them, um, the resurrection rules. And so if you want to use them or take them and modify them for your own game, that's what D&D is. It's taking cool stuff and using it in your game or modifying it to fit your game. Exactly. Do it all the time. Exactly. <laughs> Do it all the time. Um, so before we, we kind of switch the player perspective, um, there's, there's one or two more discussion things I want to talk about. And first thing before we get to dice rolling uh, <laughs> is uh, combat experience as a DM. And so one of the, I've, I've played in multiple groups and experienced all sorts of different things. I played with a DM who basically I, I roll my attack. He's like, yep, yeah, you hit. That's X damage. Cool. And you just go like that and stuff, stuff gets hit. And then uh, I played in groups or my current, my style of DM is I like to let my players kind of talk through their attacks in a lot of ways, because again, it gets them more involved and the more involved you can get your players, the more bought, bought in they will be to your world. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, I'd fire an arrow at the thing and they hit it. Oh yeah, the arrow streaks in, bam, hits him in the in the side of the chest, Ugh, grunts in pain, pulls it out and glares at you. Looks like it did some damage. So you have you have those different types of things. And as a DM, uh and you don't have to narrate every little thing. Uh big damage attacks though. Um, attacks that push them over a threshold of you know, half health or something like that, or um, letting letting your group know he's looking pretty beat up. Like you can tell he's he's pretty bloodied. He's pretty he's pretty wounded. Or um, strong take to knock him over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you put in a lot of damage, but man, he's he's still looking pretty good. You can, a lot of those type of descriptor, descriptors you can use to let your party know, hey, this guy is pretty tough. Hey, this guy's close to death, death's door or things like you slash him uh, across the chest, but it doesn't look like you did as much damage as, it, as you're hoping to. Uh, can do things like uh, tip off to this particular monster or enemy character has resistance. Mm -hmm. to something. Uh, so there's a whole lot of different descriptors you can use. Um, the classic, how do you want to do this? Uh, when uh, a big character or a big enemy dies that really allows the characters to 
get creative. I go in and I run up, jump off the rock and I just slice, cut his head off. It just goes flying. And then his DM, you go, yeah, that's awesome. You do. You run up and whew, with a swing of your long sword, Serial, the blade glows brightly. And as the monster's eyes open wide, its head flies from its shoulders. It's blood slithering across the snow. The body crumples, steam from the wound. Yep. Sky's the limit. Yeah. (laughs) Sky's the limit on cool things you can do. And for the most part, I found players love this stuff. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I will say that um, at times it is kind of, you know, challenging to keep that up for, you know, a lot of the combat, especially if you have a lot going on and that you're managing, do your best. I mean, throw in descriptive bits where you can, uh, like Ryan said, you know, not, it doesn't have to be every single turn, but it, it, it helps paint the picture, which is really what a lot of this is all about, you know? Uh, when you talk about playing D and D, you're you're gonna go kill imaginary monsters with your friends. It, it, that's exactly what you do. You're using your imagination for all of that. And whether it's on you know theater of the mind or on a grid or whatever, you still don't see the exact combat unless it's described and uh, you know talked through with everybody. And it it adds just a lot more fun with that. Yeah, um, totally agree. One thing that I want to throw out there that I think is very important for the DM. And it may sound a little weird at first, but I kind of alluded to it a little bit before, but don't be the DM. You're actually the monster or creature or enemy that they're fighting, which means I know that Joey over there has 18 armor class, but I want to do some damage. So I'm going to run after someone who I know I can probably hit more. That's not what's going to happen. You know, if you're a big giant lumbering ogre, and this paladin is just smacking the crap out of you. You're going to be fighting back against that paladin because it's right in your face. It's, it's, it's you know, fulfilling that tank role. Um, if there's a ranger that's, you know, off to the side and he's shooting you with arrows, it might suck. But this thing right in front of you, it's attacking you and really hurting. You're, you're going to lash out at it. Just like yeah, a spell- play to the intelligence of your creatures. Exactly. Spellcasters, you know, are a lot better that, you know, they're able to kind of pick their targets and see what's going on. Uh, so if you have an enemy spellcaster out there and they see, you know, a squishy target, they might throw a fireball over there just to take them out and, you know, move, move on. If something's running towards them and sticking in melee, a spellcaster is not going to stay there. They're going to try and get away because they know they're squishy. So, you know, don't just stand there to get beat up on. It's really important to, you know, have an idea of, you know, the, the wants, the the needs and and everything of these these creatures that you're you're working with um especially with you know things that are like wild animals or beasts or or something like that because they're gonna you know either run away or go to the biggest threats or you know something along those lines you you really have to to get in the mind of whatever your party is attacking yeah totally totally agree and this this can kind of um allude a little bit to your combat encounter creation again uh you don't want to make all your encounters one note you want to make sure you mix things up if your party has a bunch of ranged people and a big old tank guy and you're just throwing melee things at them you're probably not going to get to do much with them because they will probably pick them off 
along the way by the time they get. Make sure that your encounters can deal with variety of situations too. Now they don't all have to be completely balanced. You don't have to have a melee, a range, and a spellcaster in every single encounter you make, but you don't want a series of like four melee encounters when your party can handle that type of encounter just like a breeze. Mm -hmm. And so you got to think about those things as you're designing combat encounters as well. Yep. And definitely pay very close attention to the abilities that those enemies can, can actually do. You know, you might have an orc who, yeah, they've got a big giant ax and they swing it really well. In fact, they get a double attack, but he's also some sort of priest who can cast a globe of, of darkness of magical darkness and like, you know, get away through it or something like that. I actually used one of those in my encounter, which threw everybody for a loop, except for my stupid warlock who can see in magical darkness, who took him out as he was running away. But you know, it's just, it's one of those things where they have to be crafty. They have more than just blood rage. I'm going to just swing my ax and attack as well. There's believe it or not, a lot of thought has gone into designing some of these creatures and some of the things they can do are just downright nasty. Yeah. And as a DM, you want to have fun too. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of fun, unique creatures that you can use uh, and you can do a lot of cool things the players can't do. So yeah, don't forget to take advantage of that. Um, Ben, let's talk about DM dice rolling. This is potentially controversial. Guaranteed controversial. Yes. Because no matter which way we go, someone's going to disagree. So we're not going to go a certain way, but we're going to talk about both. Yes. There we go. And there's pluses and minuses to both. And we each have our preferred ways, I'm sure. Um, so there is, there is two basic styles of doing things. There is uh, straight rolling. The dice decide, and this can be extremely dramatic or it can be extremely undramatic depending on <laughs> the, how things go. Exactly. You could have a really good night and you could roll three or four crits on this monster that the party is fighting and the monster could destroy them all. You didn't mean for it to happen, but that's what the dice said. It's not, and and it doesn't end in a very satisfying manner for you or the party, but that was the the random chance. Random chance happened, it dictates. Um, The other style, and I, I, I hate to call it a style, it's something that even if you use, I would recommend using sparingly, is fudging. And so yeah. what that is, is there, there's two different ways a DM can roll. You can roll... Behind the DM screen, the players don't know what you get. You basically just give the outcomes or you can roll in front of your players, which is a completely legitimate option as well. But that means whatever you roll stands and that's, that's the de facto. Rolling behind the screen, on the other hand, gives you the option uh, to do what is called fudging. And fudging a lot of times can or is used to even things up in some ways for situations that you don't feel should happen or some incredibly good good or bad luck on one end. And I, I will stay on the outset. 
from a fudging perspective, um, if you fudge, I would highly recommend you always fudge um, in the positive to your players. Yes. Um, one big thing that I will say, and I, this is, I think, the, the biggest tip I can possibly give you if you do end up fudging any roles at all, doesn't matter which way you go, doesn't matter what you're doing, never tell your players that it's something that you do. I have someone sitting next to me who's in my game who just started laughing. <laughs> um, <laughs> because here's the thing. And I mean, she sits next to me when we play. So she can actually, if she ever wanted to, look at my dice and see what I'm rolling. Um, I am actually a person who I will take those roles, you know, no matter what. I haven't come across a situation where I think I've, I've needed to actually fudge them yet. You know, it, it might happen someday. It might not. Who knows? But the thing is, is, as soon as your players lose that trust in what you're rolling, they're just going to believe from that point on that, oh, well, did they fudge that one? Did we actually win because they, he rolled badly? Or did he just let us win that? Um, you know, our DM, is she actually mad at me? Am I, is that why I'm taking so much damage tonight? You know, it, 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 it can go bad if they really start thinking, and overanalyzing everything that you do. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally true. No, I, I think that's that's a that's a great thing to big up because uh, bring up because trust between you and your players as as a DM is key, and that's why some DMs don't roll behind a screen. Mm-hmm. Some DMs will legitimately roll in front of a screen, and what may happen may happen, and you know sometimes they roll four crits in a row. Uh, and they don't have the flexibility to be like, oh, crap, man, I've rolled four 20s in a row and they are taking a pounding and this is way harder than I expected it was going to be. And this character is going to die because I got lucky. Uh, I'm just going to have that not be a crit. Yeah. And that's, that is a that type of situation is a DM judgment call. And I guarantee it has happened a lot mm-hmm. in games over the ages and probably many times for the betterment of the player and the enjoyment of the players. Cause that's something you have to weigh too. If you decide you're going to fudge or not fudge your dice is whatever you're doing, it needs to, you need to be contributing to the enjoyment of the players. And if it's not, then you probably shouldn't be doing it, but it is, it is an option. But like we were just talking about, especially from a combat situation, there is a lot of things you can do within an encounter itself to not even have the, the need for fudging dice. Mm -hmm but that you can just change up within the encounter without changing any of the dice rolls that can up, uh, up the difficulty, decrease the difficulty uh, of a specific encounter um, and still make it better for the players while keeping your dice integrity. Exactly. I mean, heck, what if uh, your big bad wanted to take him prisoner for some reason? You know, it might completely alter your plans going forward, but there's some, that's something right there that you can do. Yeah. 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 That's oh, oh, totally. 
<laughs> yeah. If, if, if the, if it makes sense, the motivation's right. Oh yeah. Like this guy is going to kill you, but he needs he has other plans for you. Yeah. And then it becomes a, an escape sequence, which those can be really fun. It can be really fun. Um, one last thing that I do want to make sure that I touch on at least is that you need to make sure that you're also consistent. Um, if you're playing with a group of people and I don't, let's say you really go easy on one person all the time. That's not fair. It's not the way to do it. Um, if you're, you know, say if you do fudge your rolls and you're constantly fudging for one person, like you roll and, Oh, I didn't hit you again. Ha ha. You know, like, uh, let's say you have a, a warlock who happens to have a minus three to his con um, and has barely any hit points. And, you know, you, you don't just leave him alone just because he's over there and you know that, you know, his armor class is low. No, it, 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 it's a character that's out there. And depending, again, on what the mob or, you know, enemy thinks, they're fair game. Everybody on the board is. So yep. try not gotta, to play favorites. Yeah, gotta treat him as such. Um, so let's switch perspectives a little bit. Um, we talked about from a DM perspective making combat interesting and engaging. Mm-hmm. From a player perspective, staying engaged is a big deal too, because depend especially depending on party size or how many monsters you're fighting. <laughs> sometimes combat can take a while and it, it's really funny. I've heard it described as ah D and D the game where hours can pass in minutes and minutes can take hours. And that's, that's so perfect. Totally true <laughs> for, for D and D games. And that normally happens when the combat happens. Cause you're talking six second increments, 10 rounds is one minute in D and D combat time and 10 rounds with four player characters and a few monsters can take like two hours yep. to, to get through. Um, that's why one shots take forever sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and so that's, that's one of the things you gotta, you gotta realize in encounter designs too. And bonus tip, why making, why upping HP to make a monster more difficult is not necessarily a good idea mm-hmm. either because a lot of times I can just drag things out and nobody likes, likes that. Yeah. Especially and, if it's uninteresting. And if you want to talk about fudging your rolls, you can always fudge the HP too and just wait. You're like, Oh, I don't want them dead yet. Yeah. That's just no fun. No, no, that's, that's not fun at all. Um, so as a player, what are, what are some things you can do to, to stay engaged? Um, a lot of DMs, and this is a again another DM tip: make sure you're letting your players know the order of combat. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You can have initiative cards on the top of your DM screen. You can have the players keep track of what the initiative is as you go through the first round, and then after the first round, they'll have a nice list of of who's going to go and. It don't feel bad to offload some of those responsibilities to them. You're already, as a DM, doing a ton. Mm-hmm. Having the players do something like that, that can, for one, keep them more engaged because they have something else to do, something else they're tracking um, between their turns because all they're worrying about is their character. 
Yeah. That's, that's all they're worrying about. So doing offloading some combat responsibilities to your players can is one thing you can do to keep them engaged, making sure that the players know who's next after the, the current player goes is a big deal. And as a player, making sure that you are following the action and you have what you're going to do planned out. Now, sometimes crazy crap can happen and things can change. You know, you get a pass there. That's, that's fine. That happens. That's D&D. But it's good to have an idea of what you are wanting to do before you go into it so that when the DM says, hey, Robbie, it is your turn, you can go, okay, cool. I've planned this out. I'm going to do this, this, and this. Then your turn takes 30 seconds to a minute. Boom, you're done. You're on to the next person and it's flowing, flowing well. Exactly. That's one of the, the biggest complaints I always had when I was, whenever I would play is that combat just takes too long. But when, you know, I was playing, you know, years ago, fourth edition, you know, just trying to get into DMing, everybody was on their phones looking at Facebook while they were waiting because people weren't paying attention because people were on their phones because the, you know, it, it was this nasty cycle that we had where they're just kind of, you know, not tuned in. So then when it came to their turn, they're like, Oh, okay. So then they need like a recap of the situation. Then to look through all their abilities to figure out what they want to do. Meanwhile, everyone else has checked out and it, it just, it was the situation that just wasn't fun for anybody. Now, luckily the group that I'm with, everybody's like engaged. They're paying attention. They're knowing what's going on. Um, when, you know, whenever I am calling out initiative, because I, when I DM, I keep everything in like a spreadsheet and stuff and, geeky when I do it, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll be like, okay, you know, Robbie, you're up followed by Jessica next, you know? And then Jessica knows, Oh, okay. I definitely need to pay attention to what's going on right now because I'm up next and, you know, have an idea of what's going on. Um, one of the, the, the big things that's hard is that depending on your class, you may have a lot more to think about, you know, on what's going to happen on your next turn, especially since, okay, your turn's over. And all of a sudden, all these other people are going first, which completely changes the battlefield. So you may be a caster who, oh, I'm going to throw a fireball because that's the coolest spell that there is. And then all of a sudden, the barbarian runs into you know, the middle of the fray where all of the, the enemies would be. Oh, well, should I really throw a fireball now? Because now he's going to be in the middle of it. He's going to take damage no matter what. Then you start kind of thinking about it, what's going on, and if you're a caster and you're not paying attention to what's, what's, what's up and at least being semi-familiar with some of your spells, it's just going to take you a long time to, to get back into the swing of things. Yeah. And you never want to be that person who's constantly holding everybody else up. Yeah. Because no, nobody likes that. That's just, that's just hard for, for everybody all around. Um, one of the other things you can do, we, we talked about it a little bit, um, to kind of get into combat more, describe your attacks, but not in the, I've, I've been in a lot of groups that do this. It's just like, okay, I'm going to reach up and smash his head in with my mace. And as a DM, it's just like, well, you got to roll the hit first. <laughs> yeah. So it, a lot of times what I try to tell my players, is, okay, uh, tell me what you would like to try and do and like okay i'd like to try and jump up and smash him in smash him in the chest with my mace it's like awesome okay roll a hit 
And then from that, they hit and I can take what they described and turn it into a cool them hitting the monster in the chest with their mace. Or if they miss, I can do, you swing toward the chest, the monster dodges slightly to the side and slaps your mace down mm-hmm. type yeah. thing. So way cool for a miss, even though it, it sucks to miss. Yeah. And you took that from what they wanted to do. So as a, as a player getting into the habit of kind of saying what you want to do with your attacks, even if it's just flavor and a lot of it times it's, it's going to be, it just makes it that more, much more cool because then hopefully everybody else is engaged because they want to do cool attacks as well. Um, you got to think, you got to think tactically about things as well as cinematically. As well as cinematically. That's right. You got you to gotta have a good mix of both to, to really make things happen. And it, 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 again, it depends on the combat style that your DM is using. But from a combat perspective as a, as a player character, as you're getting in, or you probably should be thinking about this before you get into combat. Sometimes it can't be avoided. But as you're rolling initiative, you need to kind of take in the battlefield and go, okay, is this something we can win? Okay. If it is, let's, let's kind of, let's talk it out. The more, the more discussion you have with your party, the better, because this is, this is a group game and your DM may be flexible on like how much table talk uh, he allows, I like seeing my players strategizing and talking. You don't want it to take up too much time, but it is, it is something that does engage the players when they do it. So a lot of times I like to let them do that because it shows that they're really thinking about this, that they're really engaged in it, even if it may be quote unquote metagaming, um, to an extent. So you have to, you have to kind of think about that. The big thing you do want to be careful about, though, is that you're not playing someone else's character if you're talking about certain things like that. And I know it can be kind of hard, especially if you know you're you're a D and D pro who's played all these different classes and everything. Uh, you know, in and the uh, the sorcerer comes up and they're not entirely sure what they should cast in the situation. So you're like, oh, well, did you learn this? Do that in in attack right here. You know, don't don't do that. Just maybe suggest like, Oh, well, what spells do you have? Or something like that. You know, the idea is again, that each player has their own agency, but you can talk about it as a group. And it, like Ryan said, it, it comes down to, you know, really how much your DM is, is allowing the table talk. But for the most part, some is always good. And I think that they're going to agree with that because it'll also help combat just go smoother as well. Yeah. One other thing too, as a, as a player you want to play to your character. Mm-hmm. You, need to, you need to make sure that you keep in mind not what Ryan the player knows, but what Eldon the wizard knows. I have an overview. Ryan the player has an overview of the entire battlefield. What does, but what does Eldon the wizard have? What can he see? What can he hit? What knowledge does he have? Does he know what's going on behind him? Probably not. And so as a player, I don't want to make decisions of what I do in combat based on what Ryan the player knows. I want to make decisions in combat based on what Elden the Mage 
knows. And that can, is one of the hardest things mm-hmm. to, to separate sometimes because you don't want to play the combat with that above board knowledge because everything's laid out. It has to be. There's, there's not much you can do about it. You can see all the perspectives. And so you have to make sure that from a role-playing perspective and from a combat perspective, you're acting only with the knowledge that your character would have, not that you would have. Exactly. I don't know how many times in the games I've DM'd where someone has uh, charmed someone else, but then the player who's like next on the initiative has no idea that that's happened. It just gone right ahead and attacked them right away. You know, it, they're playing to, to the character and what they know. And it, it's, it's frustrating at a time, but that, that player can't blame the other one. Cause again, they're playing it in character, which they would have done the same exact thing. Things yeah. like that happen. That's yeah. why, again, when you're doing stuff, you need to be wary of, or aware of what you're doing as well as everybody else. Yeah. And I think this in a lot of ways goes without saying, but know your character. And we talked a little bit about this last week. The DM cannot know every character and, and know every little facet of every character. Mm-hmm. You're, as, as a player, your job is to know your class. Now, if you're a new player, it takes some time. That's okay. Early combat will be slow as you're trying to figure out what to do. Oh my goodness, I'm a rogue. I have cunning action. What can what all can I do with a bonus action? Oh man, that's a that's a big list. That's where things like D&D Beyond, for example, can help a lot because they actually have little tabs of here's all my actions, here's all my bonus actions, here's all the things I can do in combat. Boom right there. That's definitely handy for new players, but it it does take time, but over time you shouldn't have to be constantly looking stuff up again um, or constantly asking the DM for, for advice or if they, they know a certain thing. You, your job is to know your class and know your character. And that's one of the reasons you level is because it's a slow build over time. Now, if you're running a one-shot with a, a seventh or eighth level character that you've never played before. Okay. You know, you're, you don't need to, it's not, you're probably not going to religiously know all the different options and facets of that character. But if it's character that you're leveling and you've been with it for a while, you should try and make sure you get to know all the, the, the facets and the, the little, the little things about that character so that when the DM asks you, what does that attack mean? You can be like, oh, bam, this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It means this, this, and this. Yeah, and some characters are a lot more complex than others. That's one thing that you really need to, to keep in mind. If you're a first-time player and you want to play something uh, as complicated as uh, like a warlock, well, I think they're complicated because I don't understand them. <laughs> I, I've never played them. <laughs> and I know that like their spellcasting is kind of weird and different you know, compared to like a wizard or a sorcerer. Um, you know, if I'm jumping in at 10th level, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be the class for me because I have no way of of having that understanding right away. Um, in, in fact, it, it was kind of a joke. Uh, so if you're a fan of Critical Role, 
Travis Willingham, the first character he ever played was, you know, Grog the Barbarian because he went into D&D not knowing anything about it. He's like, okay, I just want to be a big muscle band doofus who doesn't know what anything that's going on. And it was the perfect character for him because first of all, when he rolled his stats, he rolled low intelligence. So if he's lost and doesn't know what's going on, perfect. It's right there. But it was more simplified at a, at a lower level versus something like, you know, a rogue. Um, you know, he can go in, do his attacks and he's good. He's good to go. Whereas a rogue has, you know, stuff for bonus actions that matter. Um, sneak attack is something that they do. You know, there, there's a lot more complexity involved in another melee character. You know, it, there's a lot that you can do. That being said, just because you see someone else doing something as a bonus action or, you know, does two actions in one turn or two attacks in one, one attack action doesn't mean that you get to as well. And that's where knowing your own character matters the most. Um, like Ryan was saying, cunning action. That means for rogues, you can disengage, you can hide, or you can dash on as a bonus action. That's pretty big and very key to a rogue. Whereas a monk, they can't do that. But for a bonus action, they get their unarmed strike. So essentially, they get a free attack if they don't do anything else. Comes in handy. Very it does. Handy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's, it's just knowing your class. And that's one of the biggest things you can do to help your DM out is, is know your class. The second biggest thing as a player that you can do to help your DM out is keep track of your buffs and debuffs that you put out there. Uh, there are some characters who can cast spells that affect a huge number of things. Um, so keep in mind, like if you're concentrating on a spell, that that's a very important thing, uh, which in the, in the game where I'm playing as a cleric, concentration was never a thing that mattered for a very long time until finally I kind of read about it. I'm like, oh, this is a thing. And I talked to my DM about it. I'm like, we need to pay attention to this with me because you know, I'm casting these things all at, you know, at the same time, I'm not supposed to be able to, or um, if you take damage, do I, am I still casting this specific spell? That stuff matters. Um, yeah. Turns out you can only have one concentration spell up at a time. Exactly. Which it still weirds me out that spiritual weapon is not a concentration spell, but that's something beside the point. Freebie. Exactly. Um, but it, it is nice to, you know, as a DM, someone like say, if you're playing a bard and you give inspiration to someone, one thing is, is every bard knows if they give inspiration to someone and they haven't used it yet because they gave that, that, that special little gem of extra and people forget about that all the time. So if you're able to say, you still have inspiration, that helps. If you cast um, Bane, I think it is. Uh, on you know as a cleric on three things keep reminding the dm you're not annoying them believe it or not yeah they're actually forgetting that they're don't forget to roll that d4 exactly and it, it helps out a whole lot because as we said before the dm has a lot going on and i've said this to my players as well it's like okay if you do this you know help help remind me when it comes um something that i stole from matt mercer is you know, using the the little plastic rings on like soda bottles as markers. Um, now there's also uh, 3D printed templates that actually have like the wording around it, so you can put on little marker or character markers and stuff, which are really handy. Yep, I use those in my game. Yeah, I love it, them. It they helps. they have helped so much. 
Yep. Yes. You, that way you'll know if you're charmed, so if you're blessed, concentrating. I mean, tons of stuff. It helps. But if you know, you're doing theater of the mind or something like that, you need to be aware of what you're doing and how it affects everything at play. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so lots of things to keep in mind, uh, both from a DM and a player standpoint. If you have any more tips and tricks from either side, please let us know. We'll have uh, ways you can contact us uh, when we hit the end of the show, which we are about to do. But first, we have a community content shout out. And Ben, why don't you take it away? So I randomly saw this on Twitter probably six months ago, seven months ago, something like that. Um, It was a, a map building website that was actually uh, in beta at the time. It's incarnate.com. It's I-N-K-A-R-N-A-T-E. I absolutely love it. Um, it, There's a couple of different tiers here. Like you can join free and you have access to like a a bunch of different things that you can do to kind of play with it. Um, You know, make your own map, whether it's like a, a city map or like a country map, you know, the scale changes depending on what you want. Um, I've used it to make uh, my DM setting, at least the, the area where they are right now, called the Sage Coast. And uh, I'll, I'll send the, the uh, picture of it to you, Ryan, so you can see it. it, it I absolutely love it. I think it's great. And it is a, a, a fun little thing that's, you know, I've been able to say, because I have no artistic ability whatsoever. So same, same. Being able to, like, you know, kind of draw, um, you know, coastline and everything. There, there's uh, different pictures for... Um, uh, like cities, uh, they have just fill in tools so that like, you know, you're trying to put in trees, you just hold down the mouse and draw a whole bunch of trees all over the place. It, it's absolutely fantastic. It's a lot of fun to, to just, you know, get in there and putz around with. Um, like I said, there's a free plan and I mean, we're not sponsored by them at all, but I kind of recommend the pro plan. It is $25 for, for a year or $5 a month, but I got to tell you, it is absolutely fantastic. It, it would like all the cool stuff that you can do with this. And I recommend it incarnate.com. It, it's pretty great. Yeah. And it looks pro like someone without artistic abilities can make a map on here. And it's like, Whoa, man, you put time into that. It's just like, Oh yeah, yeah I did. <laughs> But yeah, it's and it's it's really cool to be able to do that from from a lot of standpoints as a DM. It helps you visualize what especially especially if you're in a homebrew world mm-hmm. where where everything is in in relation to each other. It can be really cool because I actually made a map, printed it out, and then when my characters wanted to go buy a map, I was like, "Oh, yeah, I have a map." <laughs> you can buy this for 10 gold or whatever, whatever it was. And they're just like, Oh, this is so cool. And it was really cool because it's a custom map that you made of your world. That's printed out that you can physically hand to the players and players love that. It's again, just more things to draw them in more things to help them visualize and add to the, the feeling of this is a real world, not just some abstract thing. Exactly. And I mean, it's one of those things that it, it just adds so much more flavor and depending on how you go about it, how you do it and stuff. I mean, any sort of map is interesting. It gives them more of a sense of place as well. So lots of fun. Highly yeah. recommend. Totally agree. Um, so before we get out of here, let's talk for just a few minutes 
about the games that we've been doing. Uh, what have you been up to in your D and D world? This is always such a fun topic. And this is something that I never get enough of just talking to everybody else. Um, so last, last session or last episode, we talked about how I made my characters completely, you know, paranoid. They're still paranoid because we haven't had a chance to play yet, but uh, we're, all of us are very excited. In fact, um, someone almost changed their birthday plans entirely just so that we could play D and D again. But that's uh, a good feeling. Yeah, I know. It's like, Oh, I really want to know what's going to happen with this. And so I'm like, Oh, well, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, we're going to be playing that at the end of the month. Uh, however, I was able to uh, join in on a game last night. Yes. And uh, it, it, well, it's funny because um, the DM of the game actually had a little intro. We, we played for about an hour or so beforehand and I got some information about things. I was able to share some stuff. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into that just because I figured stuff out and uh, had it. You can actually listen to it if you want. And and it's shameless, shameless plug, but it's not a shameless plug because it's our podcast. So, and it's (laughs) another one I do. It's plus five. It's, it's called plus five to hit P L U S the number five to hit. Um, You can find it anywhere where fine podcasts are available. And this is an actual uh, campaign podcast that I take part in as a player. And we've been going I, I, for um, several months now. I think we have uh, almost 20, 20 episodes or a little over 20 episodes out there. Super fun group. It's a group of just other podcast people just playing D&D in a homebrew campaign setting and a lot of fun. So yeah. if you want to see me and as of last night, Ben in an actual campaign, you can go check that out. Yep. I, I highly recommend it. I listened to it actually, you know, well, well before, you know, I was invited to play on it and it's always been a fun time. I've, I've actually really enjoyed it. And again, last night I had so much fun. Uh, my character race might've been chosen based off of listening to the show, but uh yeah, we have a paladin that is not super fond of elves because of a bad experience. Yep, and I'm not helping. <laughs> nope, not helping at all. Uh, but yeah, that one that that was super fun. Uh, I play a bard in that one, and bards very crazy. bards are so much fun. I I love bards. It really lets me uh, do my slightly wonkier creative side uh, out a little bit. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, I did have my monthly game this last weekend and it was super fun and it worked out really well because one of our players only had one of it time availability to do it throughout all of June and it ended up working out that good uh, Sunday, Sunday, everyone was able to make it. So we had our, fir- uh, our four full four person party. Um, they've been kind of working their way through. I talked a little bit about the gauntlet Last time, this time around, um, they had picked another job off of their, their notice board. Um, and after they had had their long rest, they came down from the inn they were sleeping. One of the things I like to do personally is if I have time, I like to do props. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and we'll probably talk about this in an actual epi- episode at one point, but props are so much fun. Players love them. 
being able to like the map thing, hand them something tangibly. So I actually made a newspaper, the front page of a newspaper for the large city they're in and uh, wrote it up, printed it out and did the little uh, coffee aging trick. That is cool. Let it dry. And so I had my, my dragonborn innkeeper reading the paper when they came down and he kind of mentioned a few things and it actually had a few fairly large pieces of information that from, from some other uh, plot lines in it. And so he's like, yeah, you want to see it? And they're like, yeah, sure. And so I reach back behind and I hand <laughs> one of the players, the thing, and they're just like, ah, <laughs> so that was, that was super, super fun to be able to do. But they, they t- ended up taking this, this, <laughs> it was, it was my favorite one. It basically was on the notice board. It just said, help need cleaning. <laughs> come to you know x place treasures and that's all it was and it was all in caps and so it was it was this eccentric little gnome wizard guy they they found out at the time who, who needed help um getting his wardrobe cleaned out of course it wasn't an ordinary wardrobe it was a very large pocket dimension wardrobe oh, that cool. has several rooms and all sorts of stuff and it's it was just we, we got through about half of it. It's like a little mini dungeon almost actually uh, had some puzzles, had some fun stuff, had some encounters. Uh, they had a blast doing it. Really fun time. They ended up getting this item that I found. <laughs> I found on D and D beyond and I homebrewed it a little bit and tweaked it called professor orb, which is a sentient orb that they can talk to that is very smart in a, in a, in a narrow range of topics. Mm-hmm. And so now it's fun because I have this like Jarvis like voice for when they, they want to do stuff. And it's now a way that I can uh, help give them lore and stuff too, when they are interested about one of those certain topics. So it's, that's, so I'm cool. super excited about that. That should be really fun to to do going forward. Yeah. Creative ways to throw in exposition are always really hard to do. So that sounds like something that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how that turns out and how they end up using that essentially sentient item. Very cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. So as always, we'll have more updates on our, our personal stuff, games we play in games we DM as the weeks go on. Uh, but that is going to, pretty much do it for us tonight. Ben, why don't you tell everybody where we can be reached? Because we would love to get feedback from you. We'd love to get tips from you that we can read out and share on the show as well. All right. Well, the best place to uh, send us any sort of feedback, uh, suggestions, or uh, just, you know, your experiences in, you know, creating encounters or playing in them is send an email to dndiscussions at gmail.com. We're looking forward to hearing from each and every one of you at some point to uh, hear what's going on in your campaigns. If you want to uh, go with a a little bit faster uh, notice from us, uh, you can always Twitter us. That, oh my gosh, I feel like an old man. You can always tweet us. You're at- always hit us up on the Twitters. Yes, uh, we're going to be on the Twitters. Uh, that is at DN Discussions on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, we both have access to that. So, you know, send us a message, uh, a hello, whatever. Uh, give us a follow if you like, and uh, we'll be there. Uh, Ryan, 
If people are looking for you, though, where's the best possible place? You can find me on Twitter at TBKZord and uh, hit me up on there. We can talk about the show. I'm big fan of all things D&D. Would love to have a D&D discussion oh. with you. Oh, um, but that's that's the best place to get a hold of me. What about you, Ben? Where's the best place to get a hold of you? Um, also Twitter for me. I'm at Ben Bumhofer. It's just my name. And it's phonetic. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much uh, for tuning in and listening. We will be back in uh, in a few weeks with the next episode. So stay tuned and we will catch you soon. Bye, everybody.